you would please keep your finger on that spot in the text as we'll be going through it, Lord willing, this morning. <clears throat> if you don't mind, give me a, just a moment. I don't know why, but Sunday morning I, my throat locks up about this time. Okay, uh, let me pray for us. Again, Father, we come to you in prayer asking that uh, you would lead us, guide us, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would, as they say, hide us behind the cross, that, Lord, you would prevent us from error and deception, that the truth might have free reign and the truth would set us free. And so, Father, we pray even now as we hear your word, as you speak to us, uh, through the spoken word, through the foolishness of preaching, Lord, may it be made the wisdom of God, and may it lead us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Uh, we won't revisit uh, the first part of this other than to remind you that several months ago we covered the first couple of verses here dealing with the man who was uh, paralytic, healed uh, by Jesus. And uh, I have chosen, and I'm sorry if you get tired of it, but I like the paradigm of doctrine, doxology, uh, doctrine, excuse me, drama, doxology, and devotion. And so when we talk about a story or a pericope or a passage of Scripture that relates a story, there are those characters in there who are acting out life. Uh, they're on the stage of the world. And of course, Jesus enters into this. And if you will remember last week, it's a very dramatic story. Uh, we won't retell it other than a man for 48 years has been laying beside a pool. And then, <clears throat> I don't, when I say drama I don't, or dramatic, I don't mean that all of a sudden Jesus came in wearing a halo. But he stood before this man, the eternal son of God, and he healed him. He told him to take up his bed and walk. So today I want to take a look at this again with fresh eyes. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to talk about the last couple of verses of this. But as an outline, I have down how the drama deepens. It becomes much more dramatic. And how the drama is used... This discourse, this drama is used to develop doctrine about the relationship of the Father and the Son. And then finally, how this doctrine is deployed in doxology. In fact, the doctrine, the story that, in, from which we get the doctrine leads us or should lead us this morning to worship in spirit and in truth. We addressed the text last time, and let me read it again, these couple of verses. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. In the story, this drama, we see Jesus approaching this healed man, and he deals to him personally, and he deals to him about sin. If, we, if you were to turn, or if we were to turn to page 870, in our Trinity hymnal, we would see this question, what is sin? And we would have an answer to the question. <clears throat> it simply says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. 
I want to see if I can turn over here. I'm coordinated enough to do this. Um, to the very last verse in this text, and it says, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If there's anything that typified Jesus, it was total conformity to the will and to the law of God. So <clears throat> we have this idea of sin, this transgression, this lack of conformity to the will of God. Wayne Grudem puts it this way, we may define sin as follows. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin here is defined in relationship to God and His moral law. Sin includes not only individual acts, such as stealing or lying or committing murder, but also attitudes that are contrary, and mark this, because this is, this is central, to the attitudes of God <clears throat> that He requires of us. Perhaps we often think of the law of God, we're talking about transgression of the law of God, as something separate from His being. I want to point out <clears throat> that in, excuse me, I want to point out that God's law is connected with His person. I'm afraid that we separate these in, uh, from God Himself. Concerning the law of God, Stephen Wellam has written, First and foremost, we must think of the law of God in terms of God. Not principles, not carvings on a stone, not something in uh, the beginning of our Bible, not the things that we hear around us, not the things that we see, but the, the law of God comes from the person of God himself. He continues, for this reason, excuse me, the triune God is the law because his will and his nature is the moral standard of the universe. For this reason, God alone has the right and authority to determine what is right and wrong and to hold his moral creatures, both human and angelic, accountable to whether they have perfectly obeyed his commands or they have conformed to the will and the desire and the moral character of God himself. Let me repeat that second line. The triune God is the law because His will in nature is the moral standard of the universe. As we look at the text today, I want us to keep in our minds two words, will and nature. The will and the nature of God. The will of God is simply what He decides, what He desires. I think sometimes, I like the old King James in Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks about according to his good pleasure. Uh, sometimes we, uh, I've asked the question in classes, is God happy with you? Uh, and the answer is he's happy with his son and he's happy with those who are in his son. God is happy. He's blessed, first of all in the Trinity, but also in his church that he has sent his son to redeem. As <clears throat> it has been a while now since we've addressed Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well and his disciples. I simply want us to remind of what Jesus said to his disciples. If you remember, they went away to look for food and they came back and he'd had this encounter and this 
dialogue with the woman at the well. And, and they said, has someone brought him food to eat? And here was his answer. I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, in this last word, and to accomplish his work. Now, as we go through there on the word level, if not on the concept level, I hope you'll pick up on things like will and being and the work of God. And we'll address that a little more. <clears throat> I don't have two pages here and I can't keep them straight. Okay, Jesus, we say the doctrine uh, or the, the drama deepens because Jesus is accused in our text today, uh, he's accused of violating this, the Sabbath. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things, doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse, the next verse says, Jesus' response, My father is working until now, and I am working. The accusation they make now is not a violation of the Sabbath, but of self-veneration. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal <coughs> with God. The first thing I want us to notice is the text doesn't say Jesus said to them, or Jesus spoke to them, but Jesus answered him, which would imply that there was a dialogue going on between the Jews <coughs> concerning the Sabbath. <coughs> and in this text... We're going to see his interaction with them and his answer to them. Uh, I don't see in the text anywhere he calls God his father. But this is what the Jews that he was addressing deduced from the conversation. Uh, <clears throat> what we do know, and we don't know how it came up, they came up with this idea, but what we do know is that Jesus answers their accusations and their protestations concerning the Sabbath by simply saying, My Father is working until now, and I am working. There's much we don't know about what Jesus was answering, but from his answers we do know that the, Jesus, the Jews understood, clearly understood, that he was claiming, or their accusation, you are claiming equality with God. And so uh, whether you're the oneness Pentecostals or whether you're the Jehovah's Witnesses or whether you're of another ilk that does not believe that Jesus is God and that he never claimed to be God, if you put any credit into the first century interpreters, those, that first original audience, the Jews knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. And our witness to you this morning is that Jesus not only claims to be God and equal with God, but he is God incarnate. And we know from the consequence of this, in the next verse it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Mark that, all the more. Uh, that suggests that there was a animosity uh, and a desire to kill Jesus even before this interaction. It suggests that they had sought perhaps in other times to destroy 
God. But now it only intensifies and in deep and deepens. That's why I say the drama deepens. But the drama is also used, this discourse is used to develop doctrines, specifically the doctrine of the equality of the Son of God with his heavenly Father. Perhaps you're wondering how the statement the Father was working until now, and I'm working, would suggest that he was calling God his Father. Well, we borrow from extra-biblical studies and scholars to realize that at that time, in the first century, there were several rabbis, and it was a Jewish opinion that God not only worked in creation for six days and then rested, but that he continued to work. He continued to work in sustaining the world and in his providential care. They saw that he was constantly interacting with them. Now, <clears throat> and so these are things that are not in dispute. How was Jesus working? He was working by healing and exerting power over the consequences of sin. We know that the wages of sin is death, that Adam and Eve sinned and that there was a curse put upon the earth. And since then, sickness and death has been uh, our portion because of the fall and the rebellion of Adam and Eve. In chapter 3, we know something about this healing power and the wonders that Jesus did. For Nicodemus said, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things or these signs <clears throat> that you do unless God is with him. Well, he recognized part of it, but certainly God was with him. In fact, he was over... His, he was overshadowed in his birth by the Holy Spirit. God was with him, he was in him, and in his baptism he was anointed for power and service by the Holy Spirit. So, yes, God was with him. But more than that, he was God incarnate, God in the flesh. That's the way we began this study. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. talks about him as the Creator. All things were made by him, and not anything that was made... <clears throat> was made unless he had his hand in it. And of course, the Holy Spirit, we know, who hovered over the deep, was involved in creation. So we have this doctrine, uh, or this development of doctrine, dealing with the equality of the Son with the Father. Now I'm going to suggest three ways that he's involved or equal with God. He's equal with God in his nature, in his essence. He's equal with God in his power. And he's equal with God in his authority. The nature, and I want to, some of these things are just thoughts that I, I think have to preface and, and, and have to be clarified. They kind of stand alone. The nature of God, the power of God, and the authority of God are distinguishable, but they are not separate. And we'll see this as we talk about the nature of God. The nature of God, or we might say the essence of his being, or we might use a more technical term, the ontology or the study of the being of God, uh, what does it mean? Through the centuries, both philosophers and theologians have labored in ways to describe the nature and the essence of God. The nature, I would suggest to you that the nature of God can only be fully known and when I say fully honed, I don't mean comprehensively, but what we can know about God can only be known 
through revelation and illumination of the Holy Spirit. He reveals Himself to us in His works, and He reveals Himself to us in His name. First of all, His name in Exodus 3, 13 and 14, we read, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me <coughs> to you, and they ask me, What is His name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say, <coughs> say to this people of Israel, I am sent me to you. We, deviating from the notes, but I think we've got time for this. I think it's crucial. We do not assign names typically with meaning behind it. We, we go through a baby book and we find something that we like. There are trends in names. But in the scriptures, it's replete with names that have a meaning. Uh, Esau meant red and hairy. Jacob meant supplanter. Uh, Jonathan means uh, gift of uh, God. Um, and so the names of Jesus are many names of Jesus. And his meaning, his name here has meaning. It simply means that I am who I am. It's a ver I, I like to say it this way. If I'm incorrect, Greek scholars correct me. I is. He uses a verb of being. And we're going to see that word is in several confessions. <clears throat> the, less, the 11th century philosopher and theologian Anselm is known for his ontological argument or his argument for the being of God. He puts it this way. God as, is as that being that which nothing greater can be conceived. There's nothing, whatever you can conceive of, you can't conceive of anything greater than God. Uh, in fact, we can't conceive of, we can't begin to imagine or picture the greatness of God because He's infinite. We can talk about it and we have some concept with words, but we, we really can't go there. The Belgic Confession in 1561 reads this way, We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is only one God, I want you to listen for the is's here, who is a simple and spiritual being. And I'm going to add is before each of these attributes. He is eternal. He is incomprehensible. He is invisible. He is immutable. He is infinite. He is almighty. He is perfectly wise. He is perfectly just. He is good. And the, and the overflowing fountain, He is the overflowing fountain of all goodness. A hundred years later, the Westminster Confession was written uh, two years later, it was approved, and the question is asked uh, in our shorter catechism, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, and we could add the is there again, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This is the God, this is a moral being, the all good, perfectly good God from which his law comes. I'd like for us to notice uh, one difference between these, word, these confessions, the Belgic and the, uh, and the Westminster, and it's the word simple. Uh, 
I'm going to use uh, someone else's definition of simplicity here, or simple. The simplicity of God is an important truth few Christians think about anymore. By simple, we do not mean God is slow or dim-witted, nor do we mean that God is easy to understand. Simple, as a divine attribute, is the opposite of compound. The simplicity of God means God is not made up of his attributes. He does not consist of goodness. He does not consist of mercy. He does not consist of justice and power. He is goodness, mercy, justice, and power. Every attribute of God is, his, is identical with his essence, his being. I'm, I'm afraid we're not that simple in, in our makeup. We're pretty complex at times. Well, the only thing simple about us is that we were born in sin, and that was our original nature until the Holy Spirit came in and quickened us and gave us life. <clears throat> He is equal with God in his nature and his being, for the essence of God is flowing out, flows out in his actions and his works. We already mentioned God's work of creation, sustaining, and providence. They are an outward working of who he is in himself. It comes from his will. It comes from his purpose. It comes from his wisdom. And it needed all of the power. It didn't exhaust his power. But the power of God to create something from nothing is a powerful... We should draw comfort from that. That our God, that we are able to say, Heavenly Father, we come to in the person of His Son, His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, hears us and cares for us. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. Uh, and He has our well-being always before Him. But these works are demonstrated in power found in the Father and likewise in the Son, and though not mentioned in this text, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus in this discourse continues to expand and develop this relationship in verses 19 through 22. First, in verses 19 and 20, I want us to notice the contrast to the word is with the word words, do, does, doing. Is is a verb of being. Do, does, doing are all verbs of action which require energy or require power. Here are the verses. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself does. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. The question might arise, is God equal? Uh, what does it mean that Jesus, if, if Jesus is equal with his Father, what does it mean he can do nothing of his own accord? That simply means that he doesn't do anything of his own cord. But what he sees, and it's clear here, what he sees the Father do, that's what he does. He enters into, he's a part of the work, the eternal work of the Father, both in creation and in recreation and in regeneration, and all of it will be consumed in glorification. He cannot do it because his will 
His meat, his food, is to do the will of the Father. He's not a lone ranger out here working on it with his own plan, but he follows the lead of his Father. On a cultural level, the Jews experienced that relationship between Father's occupation and the Son's occupation. A couple of weeks ago, Chuck mentioned that in his, his sermon. D.A. Carson is real big on that, and he points this out. What uh, typically, what a father's occupation was, that's what his son did. Uh, if he was a violin maker, Stradivarius and his sons would make violins. If he was a carpenter, his sons would become carpenters. <clears throat> that was the mindset. That's what they understood. So they associated the work of God and the work of the son uh, in that relationship it's impossible for the son to take it is impossible for the son to take independent self-determined action that would set him over against the father <coughs> as another god for all the son does is both <coughs> coincident and with coexistive with all the father does perfect sonship involves perfect identity of will and action with the father and it played out in obedience verse 21 for as the father raised the dead and gives life now he's going to explain what the father's work has been been and what he does for as the father raises the dead and gives life so also the son gives life to whom he will for the father judges no one but gives all judgment to the son here is speaking of equity, it's speaking of the Father initiating, the Father setting an example. Not that Jesus didn't know. The, the uh, covenant of redemption teaches us that in eternity past, Father, Son, and for all time, there was never a time where something new came into the mind of God. We can't get our heads around that all, God always knew that he was going to redeem a fallen people, that he was going to give a people to his son. There was never a time in, the, in infinity where God didn't know that you would be here this morning. And there was never a time in infinity where God didn't see you in the person of his son, if you're a believer. So uh, nothing new here. It's just talking about two things, the giving of life, the raising of dead, and of judgment. 23, and there's a reason, there's a purpose. We'll find that in verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Equal honor. That was the purpose of God, to give glory to his Son. That is the purpose of God. And the Son came to give glory to his Father. Two different Greek words, honor and glory, and we'll see those combined in our summation. Though Jonas Edwards is to the end of creation, that the end of creation was the glory of God and not honor, we shall see these go hand in hand. Finally, Jesus doubles down, and he uses something King James, I think it says verily, verily. I think that's the word, a root for verity or truth. This is a way of emphasizing, pay attention, truly, Truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. This is wonderful news. But it, re it demands a response. It demands the response of belief. The people who heard this, he said, truly, truly, 
I'm not throwing facts out there just to be recorded in the New Testament in the future. Truly, truly, if you believe, you have eternal life. If you don't believe, you're under judgment already. We know this from John chapter 3, that those who do not believe are condemned already. They're under the judgment of God. We know from um, Ephesians chapter 2 that those who are dead in their trespasses and sin are even as us as the children of wrath. But God in His mercy came and He quickens and He calls those who are dead and He gives spiritual life to them. And then it continues and makes the identification even more clear in verse 26 and 27. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because... He is the Son of Man. This relationship, this special relationship with the Father and the Son, uh, He shares in His nature, He shares in His essence, He shares in His power. Paul said, oh, that I might know the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. Paul says earlier, or in a different book, he says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There's power in the good news. There's power in the gospel. There's power in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he continues. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here is the reality of the condition of man. We are born dead in trespasses and sin. And according to John 3, and as we, <clears throat> we know that we're under condemnation, but today is the appointed time to respond to the call of the gospel. Today is the day to believe and receive eternal life. For if you die physically in your spiritual sins, then you will be raised at the day of resurrection to judgment. <clears throat> But, look to Jesus, who was judged for our sins, that you might be forgiven of your sins and given the righteousness of Christ. Wherein does the righteousness of Christ exist? <clears throat> he says, I can do nothing on my own. I do nothing on my own. I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, or it's right, it's righteous, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. I said we'd finish that the drama deepens. It leads to doctrinal issues, and they should drive us to worship. I want to tie these things together. If you want to take, a, take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and I'll just read these hurriedly and emphasize just a couple of things. Revelation 4, verse 8 through 11. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, and around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy. Where do you see this? Isaiah, around the temple. He has a vision, Isaiah has a vision of the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, in so many different ways, and is to come. And whenever the creature, living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 
Here's the results. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created, that's the one word, you have created all things and by you they existed and were created. Then flip over the page, chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 8. When they had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of the incense with the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, singing, singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God for every, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let me just stop. Got to interject this. The word honor there means to value. I like, a lot of people are not fans of John Piper, but I like this one thing. He uses the word treasure. Do you treasure Christ? He's, he's worthy of our treasuring, of our honoring. <clears throat> and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. There you have the son and the father sharing in the attributions of glory and honor and power in the same sentence. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. Father, we just pray now that you would seal these things up in our hearts. And Father, apart from your spirit, we know we can't be engaged in the exercise of worship. But as we contemplate this morning, may your spirit show us afresh the wonder of who you are, that we might see how worthy you are of honor and glory and our praise and our worship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.